If you're interested in the world of video and digital media, you'll want to listen up to this interview. It's with Alex Connock, Managing Director of Shine On Digital and Shine North, based in the UK. We talk about how the world of video is evolving, what are the best ways to make, distribute, and monetize video, as well as the relevance of having a social media presence as a senior executive. Enjoy the show. Welcome to the Minter Dialogue Internet Show, where we discuss brand marketing with a focus on all things digital. I am Minter Dial, author of TheMindset.com, that's T-H-E-M-Y-N-D-S-E-T, where branding gets personal. You'll find the show notes on the blog for the upcoming interview. Let's cut to the quick. Enjoy the show. Good day. This is Minter Dial, and we are on the Minter Dialogue Show of on Skype Direct beaming into Cheshire Cats, England. <laughs> I have one line with me, a grand old friend from school. Uh, so, Alex, tell us who you are and what do you do? I, I'm Alex Connock. I'm a friend of Minter's from a long time ago from INSEAD. And I uh, work for a company called Shine, which is a large global uh, TV production company. And uh, I um, work in the UK and I um, run one of its TV production units called Shine North, uh, which just particularly specializes in advertiser-funded programming. And also, perhaps most relevantly for this discussion, a company called Shine On, which is the new digital content company that Shine has created to grapple with all the incredible opportunities that are coming our way on a daily basis in all the multiple platforms that we find in the digital world today. All right, so tell us what in Shine On you're producing. So give us some ideas, some names we can go and visit or understand. Well, in terms of Shine in general, we produce things like MasterChef, One Born Every Minute, The Hotel, Sunday Brunch, Got to Dance, um, lots of dramas. For example, in the UK last week we had Mayday and um, Broadchurch. You might have seen Spooks, Life on Mars, Hustle, big dramas that we made. Um, there's, a, there's a movie production company who made salmon fishing in Yemen, for example, last year. Oh, yeah. um, and then around the world, Shine France, where they do The Voice, and MasterChef again, Australia, they do, and America, they do MasterChef. They do tons and tons of TV shows. I mean, at any given point, I think, I think last year I saw some statistic that we've made 131 TV shows. So um, we're, we're producing lots of shows all around the world at any given time. Um, I was quite struck the other day because um, I, I didn't really know much about our Scandinavian production, and then I realized that they produced The Bridge, which is one of my favorite TV dramas of last year. And interestingly, that drama is now being um, reproduced, um, both in the UK and France. It's a co-production between Sky and Canal Plus uh, called The Tunnel, where the uh, action is transposed to the Channel Tunnel, and in America on the U.S. border for FX Channel on the U.S.-Mexican border. So it's, it's a very global company, and, and the content is very global. And the other thing the content is, is very, very um, transportable online. So a couple of years ago, even, when you were packaging up the um, rights to produce a show and you were trying to pre-sell in order to raise the money to produce a show, you would probably have a line in there that said DVD pre-sale. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that would be quite a big number. So someone was telling me on a drama the other day that they'd done... I think it was 500 or even 700,000 pounds worth of DVD pre-sale against the big drama series. Wow. Now that would have disappeared. And what you'll be replacing it with over time, although it has, the numbers haven't matched yet, is a Netflix or an Amazon or a Hulu pre-sale or what have you. So the, if anyone had any doubt that there was, a, if you like, a merger or a synergy between the TV distribution and the online distribution, they need to distribute themselves that doubt right now because actually these things are, are, are incredibly synergistic. Not only that, but on the development side, so if you think of the constant quest of any show business company is to come up with the next talent or the next project or the next idea, 
it's becoming increasingly possible to start thinking about doing development online on YouTube. And so what you would hope to do is, is to sort of create a brand of some sort, whether it's a person or a channel or something, and there to, to create a big following for that brand and then to leverage that either on its own into a marketable and commercially successful entity. And there are some big ones like Charlie is Cool, for example, or lots of ones in America where that's possible, or to turn it into a TV brand. And, you know, and, and what's happened to our business is essentially whereas, if, whereas five years ago you would sell a show essentially by walking into a room and saying, here's a piece of paper, now it's just as likely, except in drama, that you would walk into a room and say, click onto this Vimeo link or this YouTube link, watch this tape, and then that's what the show is like. And that exact sequence of events happened to me this week where one of my colleagues spent two days in his kitchen editing a video for a particular show idea that we'd had. And he essentially, he, he made what's called a sizzle tape, which is where you um, cut up a kind of mood board, if you like, of the show, as a two-minute-long movie mm-hmm. trailer, if you like. And he sat in his kitchen doing that. I went around, you know, we had sandwiches and all that. Uh, and then we played, played that tape to a channel, and they just went, yeah, we'll have that on the spot. That's how, and that's how, that's how the business works now. So Shine On is about taking that world, grappling with it, and, and, and creating business around online distribution. Mm-hmm. And, all right, so compared to the past, and now we have new lines with Amazon or Hulu and so on, to what extent has the production changed? Is there, I mean, does there anything that changes upstream, or is it just about reformatting it, rejigging it? Does it? No, that's interesting, an interesting question. To which the answer is yes and no. So, so I think a few years ago, if you'd asked people, they were very concerned that what was going to happen with um, the arrival of online was that um, there was going to be kind of lowest common denominator approach to content mm-hmm. and. Um, because of the multiplication of channels, that the aggregate amount of money available would be diluted more times, and therefore the average budget per hour or per minute would drop. And the people were really concerned about that. And at, at the various TV conferences, that was what was talked about. In fact, almost the reverse happened. What's happened is that because there are so many channels and so many platforms and so many ways for people to access content, um, the, the content itself has had to become more special in order for people to um, arrive at that channel. And the perfect example for that is Netflix with their sponsorship or production, you know, their investment in House of Cards, where, you know, by all accounts, they paid something approaching $100 million, uh, or rather the the total budget was about $100 million. There were certain TV pre-sales in there, but, you know, there's something like $100 million was invested in Kevin Spacey and David Fincher's 13-part drama House of Cards for Netflix, which became a strong driver of Netflix brand and traffic in February. Mm. And in fact, you know, the anecdote goes that on the first day in February that that program was on, 100,000 people watched all 13 episodes, which is, which is a radical transformation in the kind of network TV model when you think yeah. about it. So here you have a kind of fairly classic 13-part network TV drama, and yet people are logging in, not in arrears, not on catch-up, but they're watching there, there and then watching 13 episodes back-to-back, you know, and, and the funny thing is, that's not necessarily a bad thing for the Netflix model, because the Netflix model is about, about subscription generation. You have to have a subscription to watch anything. So provided people are interested at all and watch it at all, that's fine. Well, it's, plus, it's a fascinating new world. Just, just to answer the other side of your question, which your original question was, um, what's, what's, the, um, what's the arrival of online done to the production model? On the other end of the equation, economically, it's a radically transformed model. So, for example, we're making a channel called Nail Something on YouTube with two um, girls who, who teach um, young teenage girls how to make, make their nails you know, nice. And 
that you know the, the, the production cost on that is very 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 low indeed and most YouTube production um, models are very very low if you look at what maker studios have as their output you know they claim some 10,000 channels I'm sure if you looked at the average production cost per minute per channel you'd find it was almost zero in the sense that people are just sitting in their bedrooms making stuff and people like Charlie is cool who's on another network that actually yeah. shine it's called channel flip you know has some 150 million views you know and it's literally just the guy in his bedroom essentially so um, it, it, it's, a, it's a very, very... It's like the universe itself. It's expanding outwards in every direction. <laughs> and that makes it, you know, really, really interesting and fun. You know, I think the big qualification, if you like, is that not everyone's going to win. And so, you know, you have to engage yourself on a daily basis mm-hmm. with this simple challenge, how on earth are we going to make money out of this? Because there are a lot of people not making money. Yeah, so you have this feeling of being at the beginning of the universe, and I can totally feel that. And you, on the one hand, you have to get better, better quality. On the other hand, funnily enough, it doesn't have to be more expensive. And so the question I have as a business guy running this company, how do you evaluate market share? Um, well, yeah. Um, uh, I, well, I evaluate market share by who's paying us and how much money we're being paid by people to make stuff. You know, I think that's the best way of evaluating market share. Right, because it's such a new world. There's no yeah, real, if I was, if I was no benchmarking. A good example of that is advertiser-funded programming, whether on TV or online. So if I was to attempt to scope out the market for advertiser-funded programming, I could come up with some notional sort of um, pie chart or something that showed the amount of money theoretically involved, it, 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 available in the UK for TV programming sponsored. But that would be an entirely random statistic because mm-hmm. it's money that could otherwise be spent on display advertising or TV advertising or online marketing or any of the other things that they could spend their money on as media buyers. And it, it's not as if at the beginning of the year a specific amount of money is hypothecated by every media buyer in Britain and then aggregated into a, a, a total um, fixed budget for advertiser-funded programming. What happens is that you're in the marketing mix like everybody else and you're desperately trying to win that money against all the other places that could win the money. So it's a very, very tricky thing to do to say, I'm going to, I'm going to determine the size of the market and what have you, or even what percentage of the market I've got. Mm. And probably the better thing to do is just to say, let's go and get some business. Yeah, exactly. You know, Be an entrepreneur. So, yeah. um, but it, what's very interesting is that all the big production companies, there are about seven big TV production groups in the UK, and they're all actually, every single one of them now, has been started by and acquired proper entrepreneurs, if you like. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, that's vital because it's a properly entrepreneurial activity. You're either trying to create and sell TV shows to TV channels, which is extremely hard to do, mm-hmm. or you're trying to create and sell content to online channels and advertisers, which is also extremely hard to do. And in neither case is it some, is it some sort of automatic corporate thing like being a gas company or an oil company or what have you, where there's a kind of automatic line of customers outside your office every morning. It, it's really difficult, you know, mm-hmm. and I think one has to approach it in an entirely entrepreneurial fashion. Mm-hmm. So when, when you uh, look at the, the, the world of video, let's call it video, you've got these pure players, you've got the old-fashioned players, you've got um, so the Netflixes, you've got the Googles and YouTubes, You've got um, the the cable telcos. You've got production houses and the sort of more traditional television companies. How do you map out those that universe, and and who do you think is going to win, perhaps? <laughs> well, I don't know. I don't know that one, one needs to perceive it as winners and losers. One needs to perceive it as selfishly, rather rather selfishly, perhaps. One just has to perceive it as what can we do, you know? And I think that. Um, 
what we do every every day, actually, literally every day now, is we just think, right, let's try and make up some shows. You know, let's try and make some stuff up that people will want to watch. Whether that is, it's not my particular department, but it is the overall company, whether that is, you know, inventing an incredible drama series that will take three years to get away and will cost £10 million to produce, but will be a smash hit TV drama, you know, in lots of places. Or whether it's, let's invent a simple YouTube channel that will be sponsorable by a supermarket chain or by, you know, somebody who runs an organic farm or whatever, you know. Um, so, so we're just concerned about the content, you know, and, and I think that that's probably the best place to start. If you start from a marketing standpoint, you probably won't get um, a great bit of content and you won't achieve your marketing objective. That's the paradox, isn't mm-hmm. it? You know, if you start from the content and, and produce something great, you, it will find a market. And this is the eternal challenge of show business, which is that the, 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 the customer doesn't know what the customer wants until the customer sees it. Mm-hmm. You know, there wasn't a market of people in 1973 saying, I really need to watch an action movie about a shark in Cape Cod. You know, that's what I'm looking for. If you've done a market research survey around Birmingham and, you, and said, what, what, what are you looking for? I said, I'm really looking for an action movie about a shark. You know, they, they would, it wouldn't have happened, would it? You know, so it was only when Jaws arrived that people realised they had this pressing need to see an action movie about a shark and Cape Cod. And, and I think that that sort of is a sort of microcosmic example of what we're dealing with. You've got to invent the stuff, and people will come to you. Right. You know, what you can't do is sit there every morning waiting for an um, a set of briefs to come in, which will mm-hmm. then respond to, and you know, uh, and, and and if you can somehow build a business like that. And by the way. That's not just a that's not just an affliction of the TV trade. That's an affliction of the advertising trade as well. So I think the whole madman advertising agency model of essentially Procter and Gamble ringing up every you know month and saying, right, you know, where's our new campaign? That's to a very great degree being eroded. And what you're seeing is the big advertising agencies are very much getting into content either through direct investment like uh, WPP have done through Group M and Vibe and what have you. Or through just simply trying to create great, great campaigns with virals or what have you, which you've seen pretty much every creative agency is doing, and to even some media buying agencies. So this this is an environment where the content, you know, it's sort of it's sort of interesting enough. You know, you and I met at INSEAD in the sort of early mid nineties. At that point, there was Kennel Letter and people writing these articles saying content is king and Barry Dillers with this vision and all that. And it was kind of true, but it was too early, you know. And mm-hmm. we, they were talking about convergence when when on your landline you could barely get. Sort of, um, sort of mono dial tone. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, and actually, it took basically fifteen, twenty years before the broadband caught up with where the ideas were in that early mid nineties period. But now we're there, and it really is true that content is king. So if you and I were to wake up tomorrow and say, "Do you know what? Let's let's launch a Netflix rival with some slightly tweaked business model," you know, the, the next question would be, "What's going to be our killer show?" You know, what's going to be the show, our Sopranos, our Mad Men, our Breaking Bad, our, you know, House of Cards or whatever it is. Because it's only when you've got a killer show that you've got any kind of content proposition. Mm-hmm. In the UK, BT, which is the big phone company, um, are trying to rival Sky in the sports broadcasting field, as you mm-hmm. probably know. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, they, they've invested a lot of money in launching two channels this year. And... Um, now that they've got the channels, they need to get the content. And mm-hmm. so it's all about the content now. It's about the sports rights they can get. It's about the shows, the entertainment shows, and what have you, you know, that. And so, you know, it always gravitates back to, that's fantastic. We've got a network. Now what the hell's going on it? And that, you know, and that that's as true of YouTube or Google Plus or Google Hangouts or Yahoo or Hulu or mm-hmm. Netflix or Amazon or any of them as it is true of CBS or ITV or, or of France 3. Yeah, I totally get that. <clears throat> In a brand world, 
uh, we, we tend to use the same sort of terminology. You know, you're a brand, you're making shampoos or whatever. Well, we do still say that content is king, but we also have a product that's this hard good. And the question is sort of how do you yeah. embalm the product with this service that is the content of information, of education, of entertainment yeah. that, that you provide as a pure player? All right, so one of the questions I had for you, Alex, was how do you make money uh, with this great content? You know, what are the, what are the best ways to, to, to generate money because the, the models have so changed? Well, I think that the, I think the models haven't changed. In a slight sort of way, that's the interesting thing. Is that if you read a sort of history of Hollywood or something, you know, I have done it, read quite a lot of them, and um, if you read right back to the very beginning of Hollywood, um, the, um, essentially it was about the creation of a hit. You know, and um, it, you know, you could make a movie that people didn't watch, or you could make a movie that people did watch. And in essence, if you made one they didn't watch, you didn't make money. And if you made one they did watch, you made money. Fiction or drama, you know, the, the most obvious original way to to, um, to to fund a hit is to get it on TV, obviously. But then, in terms of monetizing it beyond that, going into profit, it's it's what they call syndication nirvana. So it's get, it's creating something that becomes scalable because that scale based on the, the, the single fixed cost of being a sunk cost, to go back to kind of business school speak, mm-hmm. become, means that every marginal sale becomes a pure profit. And so if you think, now, why is Friends such a great thing to own? It's because the original production cost of Friends is long since covered. And so apart from the residual payments to the actors and the scriptwriters, um, it is essentially a pure profit operation, rebroadcasting Friends. Yeah. So everybody is essentially trying to create content, whether online or on TV, which um, which covers its costs in terms of original first run production, but then goes into some kind of syndication or re-extrapolation. Sorry, the phone. Um, sorry. Um, it, it goes into it goes into a kind of second life, which is um, which, which is where it's really going to make the money. I understand. And so that, that, I understand. That's what we're about, and, and that same is true as on same is true online. So so you know, what what would be a useful property to own on YouTube? It would be one that went absolutely nuclear on the on the views to the point where long ago you had covered the rather modest production costs, and then you were just in a place where either with a channel sponsorship or with some kind of CPM model, you were just making money on every new view, even if it was minute amounts of money. Um, you know that becomes very very serious. You know that that, that that's the place to be. I guess so, so more than ever, people are concerned. Way of creating hits. All right, so what I, what I understand that, and what I was trying to get back to is the conversation we had a little bit before we were going online, which was this notion of, of what are the different ways to channel and and make money out of a hit. So, you know, should we be vertical, have it on our own line, have our own distribution, or do we need to use distribution partners? Uh, should we be? How much can we make money by putting it out on YouTube? Just to look at the the different options that you have as a in distributing great content? Well, they're, 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 they're so um, legion, it, it's bewildering on, on occasion. But, but, but just thinking about our own business um, on InShine On, we, we sort of segmented the market three ways. Um, and I think it's probably quite helpful to do that. The first one is, is, if you like, broadcast support. And so what we would do is if we would create a TV show, we would then seek to create additional online content around that show to give it a life. So, for example, if you have the MasterChef brand, that's obviously a brand that has a lot of traction with a lot of people around the world. And whilst they like watching it in Australia at 8 p.m. for an hour, 
they might also like to watch it at three o'clock in the afternoon if they're looking for a good Mauritian menu or a Chinese menu or what have you. So if you create a second life for MasterChef, that's the first way of thinking about it is take these really big B2C brands that live on TV, which is still the preeminent means that people reach um, content and give them a second life. So it's no accident that Ricky Gervais is launching an online channel through YouTube. That was announced yesterday. It's no accident that Simon Cowell's launching a channel and so forth. Second area is, is, is going to the pure play on the digital channels themselves. So you can do what Machinima or um, Channel Flip in the UK or Maker Studios do, which is you can create standalone channels. And if you look at the Maker Studios materials, you can see that they believe they can not only create channels, they've got about 10,000, they can create channel hubs, which have a kind of traction, but because they're all for mums or all for gamers or what have you. And then you can monetize them either through direct sponsorship from a sort of interested sponsor. So, for example, you might get uh, a comedy channel sponsored by an alcohol brand, um, or you can actually create... Um, um, you know, enough traction and enough views to actually make money and, and, and you know, out, out of the advertising. And mm -hmm. this typically is a CPM sort of 4 to $7. And, and actually, uh, there's lots of dispute about whether, whether their CPM is going up or down and so forth. But nonetheless, there, there is some magical figure out there for each given platform where if you're getting 100 million views, you can make a credible amount of money. But you need to be in that le that level. And mm -hmm. getting 40,000 or 400,000 is probably not going to do it for mm -hmm. you. Mm -hmm. um, and then the third one is direct, direct creation of content for brands in a number of different fields. So, um, for example, you could create a you know, project for Coca-Cola or Sony that worked on Facebook, or you, could, you know you could create a you know multi-platform project for a Unilever brand. And this is probably your speciality, you know. So you, you know the content that aligns itself to the consumer brand is you know powerful. And the best example of that I've ever seen was in a project that Unilever did in China called Clear. It was, it was a clear as a dandruff shampoo, and they made a project called Unbeatable, which um, which was a drama about a girl whose job it is to market as a PR person the anti-dandruff shampoo mm -hmm. Unbeatable, um, and uh, just by pure coincidence, um, the Chinese word for uh, for the for clear was also dandruff. So, so it was a kind of perfect synergy. And so it's a drama about a girl marketing shampoo that was in itself um, a, a the drama. name of the problem. <laughs> so, so it was a, it was a brilliant drama. And, and, and if you looked at the Unilever presentation on it, it was incredible the traction they got. You know, vast numbers of views in every single platform, every social media, half a billion video views. You know, mm. off on, online. You know, smash it TV traction and so forth, you know, that it was almost the perfect place to do it and the perfect example of where brands want to be. If it, I think the guy who did it, or one of the guys who involved at Unilever was a fellow called um, Jeff Seeley, who's a very clever guy, and he, he said in some session I did with him that, that Unilever are looking to spend some 30% of their global advertising spend now on, ca on content. I mean, you know, you, you may want to check that with them, but that was that was some figure that sort of, sort of notionally I, I sort of came across. And I think that's a really interesting thing is that is that, you know, very, very big brands like that have decided to directly spend on content. And so that third area of on the online content monetization is, you know, let's, let's, let's create content for brands, you know. Mm. And, and this is not any kind of rocket science. I mean, you would struggle to find any advertising agency or even PR company worth their salt in the Western world who are not now engaged with the business of trying to create content for brands. You know, mm -hmm. it's absolutely core to, to what everyone's doing. Mm -hmm. Similarly, you would struggle to find any TV production company which does not at least have ambitions in advertiser-funded programming at certain certain level, even though there are lots of regulatory challenges around that. You know, and so everybody, both on the production side and the, um, if you like, traditional advertising side, is gravitating towards this same point, this kind of nexus point.
It is most certainly an interesting area, and, and this this, uh, this Unilever thing also shows you how powerful China is as a market. So a last question for you, Alex. We are on in a digital space in Shine On, and you are a digital dude. You're living the social media world as a top executive, and, and this is not a common thing yet. It, I think one day it shall be. So my question to you is, how did you come into it, and how are you living it, being a social, on social media? Well, it is, it is a common thing, actually, and certainly in our space. I would say it's common to be really, really engaged with social media in our space, and it's also quite common to not be really, really engaged. But I, I don't think it's at all exotic to be engaged. And if I look at Twitter, you know, as it sits right in front of me now, I can see the heads of lots of rival and friendly companies that I've worked with or, you know, tried to compete with, um, all beavering away, chatting away on Twitter about everything. And I think that it's no surprise that in show business to give it its broadest definition, um, people are um, doing this because because show business has always been about engagement with the customer. Mm-hmm. You know, why would you not want to have a two-way conversation with the customer? Interestingly, one of the most interesting things we're doing at the moment is we realized that we had an enormous resource. We had lots of Twitter followers from lots of our shows, and uh, we thought we might want to aggregate and sort of measure the conversation a little bit. So we went, we sort of benchmarked all the various measurement tools that um, are on offer for Twitter around TV shows. And we ended up with one called Second Sync, which I can recommend, actually. It's really good. And what, what's great about it is you can take a TV show that you've made or transmitted, and you can, in a kind of edit timeline, view the tweets that were made about that show, as it were, in real time. So you can see that the show went out at 10 o'clock at night, and at 10.12 there was a peak in tweets. You can see what they were saying. And at 10.15, nobody was tweeting. And that's a brilliant kind of dial uh, measurement tool to work out what was working and what wasn't working in the show. Because not only is the show defined by um, how, how, you know, how positive or negative what people were, but just by how strongly they felt. And if the strength of feeling is measured by the number of tweets, ideally you'd want a high strength of feeling throughout the show on the basis that a low strength of feeling probably creates a higher propensity to switch over. So it's fascinating on that level from a sort of professional standpoint to use Twitter particularly Twitter, which is probably the only social media platform that really matters, I think, you know, as a, as a kind of genuine feedback loop to the customer. And, you know, our best successes with it have been where we've engaged on multiple levels. So, for example, we did a show in the UK called Hotel. It was made by a company called Dragonfly, a brilliant show. Um, the hotel, actually. It was about this kind of ridiculously dysfunctional hotel in um, South of England. Talkie. And, talkie, yeah. And, and, and interestingly... The, what was successful about Twitter on that show is the guy who ran the hotel, a fellow called Mark, the manager, was very, very keen on Twitter and tweeted all the way through the show. It was a pre-recorded show, but he himself tweeted all the way through the show that he was in. Secondly, the guy who'd made the show also tweeted, and thirdly, the channel tweeted. And so what you had is this kind of wonderful triangulation of comments coming or essentially from, from us um, around the show, which then created a kind of virtual power base or sort of um, bubbling away of of, of activity which everyone else was able to join in on and and that's almost the perfect way to do PR I found myself in a session the other day with BBC where they were saying you know what can we do on engagement and I was I was saying you know what's interesting is that is that whilst whilst uh, PR um, is often perceived as best something best done in a singular fashion and it's probably true that when something's going wrong you only want one person to handle it you know because you need to have a singular approach to it when you're from when you're in promotional mode you actually want to use triangulation. You want multiple sources of PR, all basically chipping into the same conversation but from different angles because there's a certain verification kind of feedback loop that creates itself 
whereby different people, you know, in the conversation saying broadly the same thing but in different ways actually creates a kind of level of credibility. And, and that's certainly, you know, so, so to go back to your original question, you know, how do one, does one engage with this? The answer is it's incredibly useful as a professional tool because for the first time in the whole history of TV since it was invented in the late 1930s, it's truly possible to have a live conversation with the audience about what's going on. And, you know, all, all those statistics, about 70% of people having a second screen open in front of them, in front of the TV and so forth, and the figure being even higher. What was that fantastic statistic about? People under 25 watch an average of um, eight hours TV a day in five hours. <laughs> in other words, you know, people are, like, watching more TV or watching more media than they actually spend time watching media because they're doing it multiple levels at once. That's really true. The second thing is just to address your question about personal sort of career side of things. I think it's not at all de rigueur to be on social media, and I think many of the most successful um, uh, media executives in our country, and I'm sure any other, uh, are still not on social media, and I don't, wouldn't say that that was any kind of deficit to them. However, I know lots of people who are, and I think what it enables them to do is to have a conversation with everybody in the game, irrespective of the geography, and irrespective of the time, and so you can get you can just get involved, you know, in discussing the issues and what have you, swapping ideas and so forth. You know, and it's nine o'clock in the morning, and already today I've had, you know, really fun stuff from guys who write and people who write books and people who have got ideas for TV shows. Some students at Manchester University who had a, who were given a viral competition, you know, where they had to try and make a video about a Kinder Egg go viral, and they managed to do it. And how did they do it? And that they, you know, they look like a really talented bunch. And you're thinking, well, could we hire them? And so forth and so forth. And so it just enables you to do your research or to you do your sort of, if you like, um, community engagement, but not in a kind of worthy sense, mm-hmm. you know, without, without ever leaving your room. Well, you I mean, know. so that you say it's not de rigueur, and I think that it's for some people completely nonsensical because they don't really have a listening kind of mindset. They may not be really interested in, you know, chit-chat or anything small talk. It's only got to be sort of very important books that were 500 pages long and that's their mentality. So for them, it's not appropriate. But don't you feel that the energy that you get when you're online and that sort of openness to all the conversations, if, if you're willing to participate, can give back energy to you? Yeah, I think that's definitely true, and I think but there's a certain type of personality that enjoys that. Yeah. I, I know lots of them, and um, everyone enjoys it. You know, yeah. there are other people who much prefer sitting in, in. It's a British reference, but sitting in the ivy, you know, just chatting to their mates there. I think what I would say is whether whether Twitter is your bag, or or you know, going to the football and having a box at the opera or whatever it is. You know, I think that I would struggle to name any media executive in in the UK or US market that I'm aware of who doesn't on some level seriously engage with the need to socialize with the customer base. And that's not a great surprise. You know, my brother-in-law is big in the pallets business, providing pallets to supermarkets so they can ship drinks around, and he socializes all the time. That's just business. You know, the paradox of, paradox of our age is you interact online, but you win business offline. <laughs> that's the strange thing, isn't it? Well, you know? I, I, f- I find you can even win business online as well, if you know how to figure it through. All right, two, last, two quick questions. Vine. Are you for or against Twitter's Vine? Uh, I, I love Vine as a sort of creative game, um, and uh, I, I'm not sure I've... But actually, there's one friend of mine who's, who's used Vine quite successfully and seems to have managed to promote her website. It's called Hello, I Fancy You, and it's some sort of dating website. She seems to have got a long way using Vine. Um, 
creatively and i think if you do a vine it's got to be good i mean i think it's only six seconds long mm -hmm. it's got to it's got to be a good narrative and it's got to be well put together and you know it, it, to use wine badly is a waste of time you know but it, it is fun i'm not sure it's a world-changing fun it's just a fun bit of kit i think video in general which is of course what vine is is an astonishingly powerful tool and i think you know my observation recently in the tv business is, is um, there was that wonderful thing in the Malcolm Gladwell book. It sounds like a dope digression, but it isn't. But there's a wonderful thing in the Malcolm Gladwell book about um, the power of video. And, and he was talking about Harvard professors and where they, they surveyed a class of, uh, about a professor at the end of a term and they got all their scores back. And then they showed another class who hadn't been taught by the professor a video of the professor for an hour and they got exactly the same scores. And then they showed a third class a 10-second video of the professor with the sound turned down and they got the same scores. In other words, 10 seconds of mute video was worth the same as a whole let the whole term of classing. That's the power of video. All right. So Alex, how can people connect with you and follow you? Uh, well, I like you, Minter. I love, I love, um, uh, hearing from random people and chatting. So, so uh, at Mr. Alex Connock, that's M R A L E X C O N O C K. Always welcome any kind of conversation. Um, and if you'd like to look at our website, shineondigital.com, uh, just launching now. So there's a great little bunch of people, and it, it's going to be a great, a great venture, I think. All right, beautiful. Alex, you can uh, return to your weekend life. Thank you very much for being on the show. I look forward to following you. Okay, love you, talk to you. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having listened to this recording of the Minter Dialogue radio show. You'll find the show notes on themindset.com, T-H-E-M-Y-N-D-S-E-T, where you can also sign up for my weekly newsletter. If you like the show, please don't forget to click the handy Facebook like button or tweet it out. And if you speak French, you can find my other French language interviews on minterdial.fr. In the meantime, please come join the conversation at The Mindset or catch me on Twitter at M-D-I-A-L. Happy trails. My name is Cindy Burnett, and each week I interview at least two traditionally published authors on my podcast, Thoughts from a Page. We talk spoiler-free about their books, so you can listen whether you have read the book or not. And then we delve into things that you most likely won't hear about anywhere else. The importance of the cover design, why they included various aspects of the story, personal details about both the books and the author's lives, and so much more. You can find the podcast on every major platform and learn more about it on my website, thoughtsfromapage.com. Thanks so much for checking it out.